Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Collins. Michelle is a mom of two teens, school psychologist, kitten fosterer, and advocate for ovarian cancer awareness and research. Michelle volunteers with Cher's Pink and Teal program, giving talks about ovarian cancer and advocacy at corporate workplaces. Michelle, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So what got you involved with ovarian cancer? Well, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer um, February 13, 2015, um, as a young mom, no risk factors or family history, and I went through um, a radical hysterectomy and chemotherapy, and I've been in remission for almost the last five years, um, and I wanted to kind of give back to um the community and support other women going through what I went through. So I wanted to get involved with uh, share and speaking with current patients because that's, that's what I needed when I was first diagnosed. I actually spoke with um, a volunteer from share about a couple months into my diagnosis and she really helped me just get my mind in the right place and um, have hope. So that was my thing when I got through everything I wanted to give back and do the same for other women. Um, so when when you were diagnosed, you said you needed support. So how were you feeling? What actually happened at that time? Uh, I was just in a deep, dark hole of despair. I thought I was going to die. Um, I really was really depressed. Um, it was just really hard to cope with everything. And I, I kind of got myself out of it just by connecting with other survivors and other patients who had been there and who are doing well and that's what gave me the motivation and the hope to fight. So I mean I think this is common with with any diagnosis people have a you know a, a processing to go through. Um, cancer seems to be a pretty scary one for a lot of people because it's quite unpredictable. Um, what was your journey like as you went through treatment and, and everything that you did? Um, it, my doctor at one point told me she was giving me permission to be optimistic. And at that point I decided I needed to stop thinking the worst and start thinking that I might survive and be the, you know, beat the statistics. And so, um, you know, once I got through chemo and I had to have intraperitoneal chemo where they put the chemo directly into your stomach. And also, I had another port where they put the chemo into my chest, so two different types of chemo. Um, and that was tough, but I got through it. And big surgery was tough. That was a radical hysterectomy, so I went into surgical menopause um, at the age of 39. So the battling of all these different side effects and symptoms of everything that was happening. But I had the support of my community and my family and my friends and uh, they really helped me. I needed it. You really need a good support system when you're going through something like a cancer diagnosis. 
Well, and and chemo is not particularly the most pleasant treatment. So, you know, it's a difficult thing to go through. What what was happening at that point? You had little kids. Um, How how did you find the support that you needed and rally through something that difficult? Um, I, I went online and I joined a bunch of support groups online um, and I was put in touch with actually a SHARE volunteer who I spoke to on the phone for about an hour and um, she just calmed me down and answered my questions and told me what, you know, what from her perspective, how she got through certain things and it just really helped. Um, you know, I lost my hair, I, I was sick, I had to have tough conversations with my kids, my husband. Um, it was it was a it was a tough time in my life, but I'm proud to say that I made it through, and um, I think I'm a stronger person now for everything. And um, are you're in remission right now? Yes, I'm in remission, doing well. Um, back I, to my you know busy life, pretty much. Which is, I think, good for people to hear. Now, with ovarian cancer, what symptoms did you have leading up to your diagnosis? Was it really obvious that there was something going on? It was. um, I had one of the more sort of uncommon symptoms with ovarian. Typically, the four main symptoms are bloating, uh, urinary urgency and frequency, um, pelvic or abdominal pain. And um, getting full quickly when you eat, it's called early satiety. I didn't really have any of those, but there are a bunch of other symptoms like back pain, menstrual irregularities, um, painful intercourse. The one that I did have was menstrual irregularities. Uh, My period became very watery and um, constant almost, and I knew something was up. I almost thought maybe I was incontinent because it felt like I was just leaking fluid. And so at first I thought I had some kind of UTI, where, um, but I didn't have any other of the UTI-type symptoms like burning or urgency or anything. It was just this leakage of this fluid. And so I went to the doctor, and I actually went to a urologist thinking it was some, a UTI, and he did a pelvic exam and did some urine tests, and everything was normal. But he said I should go for a CAT scan because it would be uncommon for me to just develop incontinence. So um, I scheduled that, but in the meantime, I went to my OBGYN because now I'm thinking it had to do with my period um, because it was happening around that time of the month, and uh, she noticed the unusual fluid, and she didn't think it was urine, and so she set me up for a transvaginal ultrasound, and I had that done before the CAT scan, and that's when a mass was seen on my left ovary. Um, So having that, that fluid coming out actually probably saved me and I was diagnosed at an earlier stage than most with ovarian cancer. I was diagnosed at stage two, which isn't so common because it's usually not diagnosed until late, stage three or four. Well, um, a, lot, a lot of the symptoms, if I understand right, of ovarian cancer can be um, kind of brushed off as something else, which, you know, is even almost what happened to you if you hadn't had that fluid leaking. So is it yes. is it really common to have it as obvious as your symptoms were, or is it more common for it to be, um, you know, something that people will just think is, you know, part of life or something else? Yeah, that's the problem with ovarian cancer is a lot of the times their symptoms are so common that, you know, people do brush them off and doctors do brush them off. They're 
you know, told maybe they're stressed out or they're going through menopause or they have irritable bowel syndrome. Um, they go to different specialists and, it, and the, the diagnosis gets delayed. Uh, but, you know, the medical community did decide that there are definitely symptoms that doctors and women should be aware of that can indicate that could, a possibility of ovarian cancer, especially if they're new for a woman, never have these types of symptoms before, and they're lasting for a couple weeks, um, you should definitely get it checked out. And so, you also have a family history. Now, you said that you didn't have a family history or, or genetic component to this. Is that a very common relationship with ovarian cancer? Yes, actually, about 10 to 15 percent of women do have a family history, and those are uh, out of the diagnoses of ovarian cancer, about 10 to 15 percent have a family history, but more like 85 percent don't. So, you know, if you do know that it does run in your family, you should just be extra aware, but it can really happen to anybody. Well, yeah, 15% isn't a lot. Um, and, and now there's a lot of talk about genetics as well, um, especially with breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Is there a huge link there that we understand, or is that something that we're still looking into? Yes, there is a link with breast cancer. Um, it revolves around the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, which um, can predispose a woman to a higher risk of breast cancer as well as ovarian cancer. So if breast cancer runs in your family at an early age, usually if someone's diagnosed before the age of 50, that could indicate a possibility of a mutation, and that mutation would also impact a woman's chances of developing ovarian cancer. So if either breast cancer or ovarian run in your family, you should just be on a little bit of a higher alert. Um, and, and so with, with that, I mean, the the genes were, were made famous by Angelina Jolie when got her, um, her breasts removed because she had that gene and she was just being cautious. Is that something that people do a lot? Will they, or do they just check into ovarian cancer? Um, some actually Angelina Jolie brought a lot of good attention to, uh, the mutation and the prophylactic surgery. She also did have her ovaries removed and, um, you know, it, it depends. It's a personal thing. Some women who know they have the mutation might choose to have the surgery done. Um, some might choose to just to be monitored closely. It's sort of a personal decision and where they are in their, you know, life, in their life, um, they are finding out that. They do believe ovarian cancer might start in the fallopian tubes and spread to the ovaries. So uh, some they're doing a trial right now in women who um, know they have the mutation. They can choose to just have their fallopian tubes taken out. And then when they're ready for uh, have, to have their ovaries taken out, delay that, that procedure, you know, maybe 5, 10 years so they don't go into early menopause. And they're, they're trying to determine if that's a safe alternative to taking out both the ovaries and the Philippines who, since going into surgical menopause at a young age can have a lot of quality of life issues. Um, so they're trying, so far there haven't been any cancers that have developed um, as the result of waiting to take out the ovaries. So that's like sort of the research that's going on right now. Well, that's an interesting development because then, you know, it might 
if it starts in the, the fallopian tube and you can keep your ovaries, I mean, we know without your ovaries, you're, you are going to go into menopause as, as you did. Um, and, and that is extremely uncomfortable. And if this is at a really young age, you know, you're, you're going to be tired and you're going to have all sorts of symptoms leading up to that. So if we can save lives by, and then keep that quality of life, I think that's definitely a step forward. Yes, definitely. So um, now how is ovarian cancer diagnosed? Like you had the ultrasound done, but was there anything else that that happened to confirm what was going on? Yes, um, they did a blood test called a CA-125. It's a tumor marker for ovarian cancer. So in a combination between the scan and the blood test, it showed a high likelihood that the mass that I had was cancerous. But there's no way to biopsy it. Uh, you have to actually take out the entire ovary. So um, the only way to diagnose it is to have your ovary removed. And um, typically what happens is they test the ovary while you're still under anesthesia. And if it is malignant, they will then proceed with a radical hysterectomy and a, it's called debulking surgery, where they then go in and take out any cancer they can see or feel. But... Um, there's really no early screening test for ovarian cancer. A lot of people think a pap smear uh, tests for all gynecological cancers, but it doesn't. It only tests for cervical cancer, um, where the doctors are busy trying to come up with a screening test for ovarian, but it's sort of been the holy grail among the medical community. We're hopeful that something will eventually come out, but um, so far the best is just for women to know the symptoms and be aware of anything new that happens with your body and go to your doctor and have it ruled out, which is usually they will do an ultrasound or, and then proceed with a CAT scan if something comes up on the ultrasound as well as com- combining that with the CA-125 blood test. Which I think is um, a pretty valid. And, you know, the symptoms aren't always obvious, so it, it must be really difficult. I think is, I've done shows on, on women's health and how women um, are kind of shuffled around in, in the healthcare system. And I know a lot of women feel uncomfortable, especially if it's a symptom that they feel might not be serious and they're uncomfortable, you know, even making it look like they're complaining about something and approaching their doctor. And then if, you know, if their doctor does also think it's not serious, I think this seems to be um, a reason why this could be delayed in diagnosis. Yes, that's exactly what happens. The women are brushed off or they're, it's delayed. The doctors don't take them seriously. And that's, that's, a big problem because a lot of women then are diagnosed at a later stage when it's harder to treat and um, that's why the survival rates are are not as good as we want them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, thank you for bringing the awareness to this because I think it's important for women to know and to advocate for themselves. I think we're really good at knowing that something is wrong, but we can get kind of caught up in, in our, either our own little voices or the voices of other people telling us that, you know, it's not as serious as we think. But we know our bodies, and, and I think we're really good at, at navigating um, what's healthy and what's not and when we need to seek out help. So as long as we can find that trust in ourselves we can continue to you know seek help until we get you know everything looked into and find what we need yes definitely yeah we have to put ourselves first you know a lot of times we have kids and 
we're busy and we're focusing on them. And if they're sick, we're bringing them to the doctor. But, you know, everything is going to fall apart once we get sick. So we can't let it get to the point where, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a huge deal if we could catch stuff at an earlier stage and take care of our, ourselves. You know, that's what we need to do for, for the safety of us and our, and our families. Well, exactly, because if you hadn't been your own advocate and, and you know, you might not be here for your children now. So it's important to, exactly. to you know, think of it that way for sure. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Michelle Collins and we're discussing ovarian cancer. We'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Can you truly expand your possibilities beyond what your normal capabilities are? It's very possible when you can know more, do more, and be more. Tune in each week to Shift Happens with host Karin Weary and co-hosts Ida Serena Lee and Jessica Duro. The world is waiting for you to show off your unique gifts. It starts with healing yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Once the scars of our past are gone, we can truly begin to shine. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Sometimes it just seems that nobody understands. There's one individual who can help. If you're living with somebody who faces challenges such as autism, Asperger's, or other exceptional needs, you'll want to tune into Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the Challenge. Together, we'll uncover a variety of solutions to the challenges faced by individuals, their families, and teachers. Listen live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio comes in. Join Becky Olson, breast cancer survivor and advocate. She helps by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Voice America. 
you are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. My co-host Oliver is a 7-pound Chihuahua cross, and he sits through all my shows with great puppy patience. He was super happy when I came home with Carbona Pet Stain and Odor Remover, which is an oxy-powered formula with active foam technology, and it is engineered to permanently remove pet stains and odor. Carbona is a household brand. They've turned their decades of cleaning experience into products that get the job done fully, quickly, and easily. Although he tries his best, Oliver sometimes does have accidents. I pulled out the Carbona Pet Cleaner, and voila, we were stain-free and clean. It was easy to use, pet-safe, and hassle-free. The built-in 2-in-1 brush top tackles stain at the surface and deep in the carpet fibers. It is now my other best friend. Use code FTTC at Carbona.com to save 20%. Happy cleaning! Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Michelle Collins, and we're discussing ovarian cancer. So, so Michelle, um, what is the SHARE program that you're involved in? So, SHARE was started about four years ago by a doctor, actually a breast cancer doctor, who thought um, women needed support from other women who were going through uh, a cancer diagnosis, and then it branched off into um, ovarian cancer, and we have... Um, just a bunch of different support groups for even Latina, um, ovarian, metastatic breast cancer, early stage breast cancer. We have support groups. We have a helpline where women can call in any time of the day and um, we can match them with uh, a patient that is in their, that was, was in their similar situation and provide support over the phone or in person. Um, we have webinars that are, uh, you can sign up for that are hosted by social workers and, and doctors and gynecological oncologists just to educate women on what's going on, clinical trials. It's just a wonderful support program for women who are going through ovarian or breast cancer and caregivers as well. We have caregiver support programs where you can a caregiver can speak with another caregiver to get support. We, that's a huge, we can't forget about the caregivers. They need support as well. Oh, I definitely agree with you on that. I'm glad you're you're including that. I um, one of the first shows that I did um, because I, I focus on Lyme. That's part of my story. But I I did a show just on caregivers, and you know it doesn't matter what the illness is. It's very difficult to watch somebody that you love suffer and be there for them as well as take care of yourself and your family and do everything they need to do. And and you know I think that part gets forgotten a lot that, uh, you know, the caregivers are um, just in the background and it's not really about them, but they do need that support. So I'm I'm glad you're including them for sure. Yeah, Um, definitely. So so if somebody's wanting to access SHARE or they just get a diagnosis, what would happen? Uh, They could call our our toll-free number, 844-ASK-SHARE is the, the number where they can go online to sharecancersupport.org 
and we'll put you in touch with the right person. <laughs> and and so how do you determine that? Do you like are you putting patients in touch with um, survivors just so that they can have that kind of conversation, or what happens? Yeah, yeah, whatever. We have in-person support groups where they can come into New York, and we have some across the country as well. Um, or we have phone support, or we have webinars uh, on the web support where they can attend, like, meetings um, on- online pretty much. So it's it's up to the, the patient what they need. We can direct, you know, direct them to the all the resources that we have and, and whatever they're comfortable doing. It's up to them. Oh, that that's pretty amazing. I I think you know we we need more of this um, <laughs> kind of support for everything that happens. I know it, it's um, I don't know if this is how you felt at the time you were going through it, but a lot of people when they're when they're ill, they feel very isolated, uh, you know, scared and and all and you know and angry and all those sorts of things. But I think isolation is one of the major things um, that I see when people are ill that that is the hardest to get over, you know, um, is that yes, something that yes. you, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I definitely felt that way. I, I, especially being younger and getting this diagnosis, I felt, um, who I you know, wanted to meet people who had gone through this at a younger age, like me. Um, I ended up reaching out to some moms in my town who I knew had gone through cancer, not ovarian, um, mostly breast cancer. And, we ended up meeting every month for like a breakfast club. Um, then I got involved with, you know, share and I went to the ovarian cancer, uh, Alliance conference. They, they have one every year, um, in July and I met other survivors and, and just developing that cancer community helped me so much. And it's, it's really, it's, it's unfortunate, but we have to sort of do the work to, to, make that community for ourselves because it's hard to, the doctors are busy, you know, curing our cancer and treating us, but there's really not that type of uh, emotional support through the doctors. Um, we need, we need, we need patients who have been through it to guide us a lot of the times. And that's sort of what helped me the most, honestly. So um, was there any um, tips or advice that you got speaking with other people that was really helpful for you? Uh, yeah, pretty. It was um, don't stay off the internet. Only <laughs> don't, which is hard to do. But go to reputable websites um, like Share uh, or like Cancer um, American Cancer Society. Don't read sob stories and blogs and try to avoid that stuff because everyone's situation is different. Um, take everybody's support if they want to give. People want to help, so don't say no. You know, a lot of times we're used to doing everything ourselves, but accept people's help. Uh, rest when you need rest. Uh, when I was going through chemo, it was eat whatever you can eat just to eat. You know, don't worry about being, you know, juicing or, or any crazy things. Just eat eat what you can eat. It's the most important thing just to, to eat. Uh, what else? I guess those are my top ones that I, I remember. Well, I, I I like the the internet one. Um, I think this is important when you're you're going through anything. You know, the internet has given us some power because people can, you know, find some solutions in that way. But I know that it can become quite addictive to continue looking. And um, 
as you said, reading sob stories or reading those those negative blogs um, can can set your mind up for for failure. When you know, if you didn't read those, you might at least feel better going through your journey or be less obsessed with, you know, doing all the little things that you're reading about that you know worked for somebody but may not work for you. Right, right, exactly, and um, you know, you definitely can get swept up in those stories. And, and even now, I still will read one every now and then, and I have to, you know, just think, this, is, this isn't this is me, This I'm in a good place right now, I'm going to, you know, hopefully I'm going to be okay. It's really easy to fall into a, a spiral of, of worry and, and fear and all of that. So um, you just have to be mindful when you're online. Yeah, definitely. Now, um with the ovarian cancer, aside from the genetic component, do we understand what is causing this? Um, it's not really. It's really just um, your your cells going rogue, I guess, in your body. Um, there's no specific cause. Uh, there are risk factors. Um, such as being older, uh, being overweight, um, never having children. They, they think that it's related to your body producing estrogen and egg and your eggs. Um, anything that will stop your body from, from producing that estrogen. So, or from making the egg pretty much. So like when you have a baby, your body shuts down, you don't produce the egg when you're on birth control pills, uh, that, that can reduce your risk. And obesity is a risk factor because um, fat cells produce estrogen. So they think it has something to do with estrogen. But uh, there's no, there's really no, like, just a definite hypothesis with so this is why it happens. Well, yeah, because I, I think what, what seems to happen is there might be multiple causes. The genetic cause might be estrogen. There might be just something else. So it might be a little more complicated than um, you know, one thing being the cause that we can just solve and test for. Right, right. Yeah, it's a it's a very complicated disease. Um, they've they've found that even amongst women with all the same type of ovarian cancer, their tumors are so different, and it's it's just a very um, complicated complicated disease. Mm-hmm. So now, if if they're suspecting that estrogen might be linked, um, is hormone replacement therapy, does that put women at a higher risk? Yes, they, that is a risk factor. They, they do think it might be linked. Okay. Um, w- which is interesting because that is something that that people navigate towards when they're, you know, going through um, menopause or uncomfortable um, and, and, you know, it's supposed to make our lives better and, and more comfortable. Um, but it, interesting that it also puts us at risk of cancer. Yeah, it's a slight risk. I, you know, I don't want to freak everybody out, but um, mm. it's a slight, slightly increased risk. Okay. Um, and, and now, is that just um, the synthetic hormone replacement therapy, or does that include bioidentical hormones? Do we know that? Does it, does it include what? Bioidentical hormones, which is a little bit different. I'm not sure about that. Okay. 
Um, and and now one thing that people have always talked about is talcum powder causing an issue for women's health. Is that is that true or is that a myth? There is no conclusive evidence that talcum powder powder is uh, a risk factor. Um, they've done a lot of studies about it, and they just can't definitely link it. Um, all the doctors I've spoken to have not said that they believe that it's a risk factor. Okay. You know, but it, would I use it now? I don't use it now. <laughs> <laughs> Just too scared. And why take that that risk, right? Right. I mean, if you could or use cornstarch um, powder instead of talc. Right. Just to be safe because why, you know, even though there's no definite link, it's something you can modify, so why not? Yeah, exactly. Um, now, it, with there being a possible hormone link to ovarian cancer, there are a lot of um, women's conditions that that could, you know, be related. I'm just wondering if endometriosis um, is a risk factor. It is, actually. That is a risk factor specifically for a type subtype of ovarian cancer called endometrioid ovarian cancer. They have found that some women with endometriosis will develop um, endometrioid ovarian cancer. Okay. And so as, because often I find women with endometriosis are, are, are diagnosed and then if their pain isn't severe, they're just sort of not even monitored a lot. This might be in Canada, but is there something that women can do in that situation to, um, to make sure that, that they're protected in that case? I would just advocate. Uh, I didn't have endometriosis, but uh, I, I would just, if I did, if now knowing what I know now, I would ask my doctor maybe for uh, periodic ultrasounds or maybe a periodic CA-125 test just to get a baseline or, you know, especially if you end up having pain or concerning symptoms, it's definitely something to just bring up with your doctor and see if you can come up with a plan. I, I like the, that you said getting a baseline. That seems to be, you know, that's a really good idea because then you know what things should look like. So if you're having symptoms and things have changed, then you know that there's something going on as opposed to, oh, this could have been there for 10 years. Right, exactly. I think that's important to know. That, actually, I don't carry the mutation. I was tested and I don't have any of the mutations or endometriosis or anything, but I told my sister, uh, tell your, you know, make sure your OBGYN knows about me and get a baseline CA125 and ultrasound um, for yourself, just so you know if you ever develop concerning symptoms that this is something new and just, you know, it's, it's good to have that information. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, what about um, the people, women can get cysts on their ovaries? Is that, is there a relationship there? Uh, cysts, uh, women develop cysts, a lot, uh, it's common to develop cysts, uh, but if it's, if it's after menopause and you develop a cyst, that's more concerning because you shouldn't be developing cysts once you've been in menopause. Um, so that would be sort of a red flag. Um, and any cyst, even at a younger age, should just be monitored, make sure it's not growing or changing. Um, and, you know, a woman can just talk about that with her doctor about the schedule and or how long you should monitor it to make sure it goes get smaller and it doesn't change is the, is the most important thing. 
Okay. And with what you went through, you said they saw something in an ultrasound. And you mentioned as well that they're not always sure if if it is cancer until they go in there. So um, can cysts look like cancer or, or do they look different in the scans and, and there's an obvious difference? Yes, there are. The radiologists can tell the difference between a concern, like a cyst that looks more like a mass or a cancer and a simple cyst maybe that just filled with fluid. So if, if the cyst on the ultrasound is solid or there's a lot of blood flow that goes through it or it's irregular, uh, if you have ascites, which is fluid that develops in your abdomen, um, which can be seen on a scan, those are all uh, red flags, um, which would make you more red flag too than pursue this. And if, if there is a concerning cyst, you should see a gynecological oncologist. Uh, but any surgery for any gynecological cancer should not be performed by your OBGYN or your, a general surgeon. A gynecological oncologist is a doctor who specializes in uh, cancer and knows how to do an optimal debulking, which is what it's called. They know where all the cancer h- tends to hide, and they're trained in getting it all out. Um, women who have their first surgeries done by a gynecological oncologist have better survival rates. So it's really important to seek out a gynecological oncologist if there's any suspicion that you have ovarian cancer or any other gynecological cancer. Mm, which is that's um, good advice. You know, we go to the specialists so that they can they can help us. Now, is that not do women not get referred to um, a gynecological oncologist all the time? Is that something that we have to advocate for? Um, hopefully, your OBGYN would know to do that, but sometimes that that isn't the case. Sometimes women do have their first surgeries done by their OBGYN, or maybe it was unexpected, an unexpected finding uh, that they found something. You're, you know, they were in for some other procedure and cancer is found. Women should then proceed to a gynecological oncologist, and sometimes they actually have to have a second surgery done in those case, cases so that the doctor, can go, the gynecological oncologist, can go back in and make sure every, everything that they can get out is out. Uh, so, yeah, it is sometimes... Women don't don't have their first surgeries done by those specialists, so you know it's important to spread the word with that. That you know you want your first surgery done by, and any surgery after that, a gynecological oncologist. Okay. And in Thank rural you. areas, there aren't as many as um, you know urban areas, mm-hmm. like big cities. Like in New York, we have tons, but some places in the Midwest don't have any, so you might have to travel, which is is a factor. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Michelle Collins, and we're discussing ovarian cancer. We'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Can you truly expand your possibilities beyond what your normal capabilities are? It's very possible when you can know more, do more, and be more. 
Tune in each week to Shift Happens with host Karin Weary and co-hosts Ida Serena Lee and Jessica Duro. The world is waiting for you to show off your unique gifts. It starts with healing yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Once the scars of our past are gone, we can truly begin to shine. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Sometimes it just seems that nobody understands. There's one individual who can help. If you're living with somebody who faces challenges such as autism, Asperger's, or other exceptional needs, you'll want to tune into Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the Challenge. Together, we'll uncover a variety of solutions to the challenges faced by individuals, their families, and teachers. Listen live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio comes in. Join Becky Olson, breast cancer survivor and advocate. She helps by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Michelle Collins, and we're discussing ovarian cancer. So, Michelle, when somebody goes through treatment, um, I know, you know, we've talked about surgery and, and a little bit of chemo. Is there anything else or, or what would be the most common um, process for somebody to go through after diagnosis? Um, to get to, to find support, you mean? Uh, no, to, for treatment for their, their cancer, is there something that, is it a common thing? Like, does everybody get surgery and chemo, or does it vary depending on what you have going on? Yes, with ovarian cancer, typically everybody gets surgery and almost everybody gets chemo, even a lot of cases when you're diagnosed at stage one, because there's a lot of times microscopic cells, even at stage one, 
that might have um, spread throughout your abdomen. So, um, like if the tumor, uh, if you're diagnosed at stage 1C, for example, that would mean that there was maybe a rupture of the tumor and um, they want to make sure you mop everything up with chemo after that. So, typically, yeah, and radiation is sometimes done for certain types of ovarian cancer, but it's not done commonly um, because a lot of the times uh, ovarian cancer is more widespread and... um, Radiation has to focus on a targeted area, so they don't typically do radiation for ovarian cancer only in like certain situations. Okay, and then um, aside from that, um, what sort of follow-up do women have? Are there medications? Are they monitored at a certain period? There are. Actually, the last couple of years, they've come out with um, some new treatments. With um, They're called PARP inhibitors and also a drug called Avastin which is um, sort of a maintenance drug. And there are now drugs that women are taking um, for a couple years after they're done with their chemo to see if it can delay either a recurrence or keep them in remission. But I, I didn't take any of those drugs because at the time I was diagnosed, they weren't available. And at this point, I'm too far out to go back and go on something. But at, there have been a lot of advances in the last few years with drugs to try to keep women in remission that are that are helping oh that's that's encouraging yeah yeah and you know we get monitored obviously with um ct scans and and blood work um over the course of your life pretty much the rest of your life i'll be my life i'll be monitored okay and is there a certain point where they would monitor you less is there a certain point where you can go okay i'm out of uh, the danger zone and you know they would maybe check less often or is it always the same risk it depends on your your gynecological oncologist mine likes to follow you follow that her patients for life so um after five years she told me that my risk drops a little bit for a recurrence but you're sort of never out of the woods. Um, I've read studies where 12, if you haven't recurred at 12 years, that is a good indicator that you might be cured, but you really won't know until, um, you know, the end of your life what you're going to die of. Um, I know it sounds morbid, but uh, there's, there's really no guarantees that it won't come back. Mm-hmm. So, how do you feel with that that knowledge? Do you um, are you afraid of a recurrence, or have you reached some sort of peace about what's happened? Surprisingly, which I never thought I would be this strong before I was diagnosed with cancer. I always just feared cancer. It's weird I had this sort of fear of it, um, and I thought I would crawl into a hole and not be able to function, but. I don't know. It's There's a term called post-traumatic growth where you go through something so devastating that you actually come out of it a stronger person. And I do live a ha- almost a happier life. I know it sounds crazy, but uh, I live every day and I'm happy to be here and I'm grateful. And I, I do a lot of volunteer work, which like kind of fills my heart and soul. And I take care of myself. I do a lot of self-care. I, I try to keep my stress down. I, I kind of live, I'm okay with it. I, I've made peace with the fact that if it comes back, I'll, I'll go through treatment again. Hopefully I'll be in remission for a long time. I, I, have, a, I have a positive outlook, even though, you know, the, the disease has been known to come back. But I, there's, I have a lot of factors in my favor that I always repeat in my head when I start to 
kind of worry about a recurrence. Um, takes a lot of kind of like mental gymnastics, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, for sure. Now, um, how old were your children when when you were diagnosed? They were eight eight years old and ten years old. Okay, and and how did they handle the diagnosis at that time? They were good. They were strong. Um, my my daughter was ten. My son was eight. I actually expected my daughter to take it harder than my son, but my son ended up taking it harder than my daughter. Um, but they, I've always been open with them. They, I never hid anything from them. Uh, they, they made it through. I tried to get them to go to a art therapy group at a local hospital for children of parents with uh, serious illnesses, but they, they weren't interested in that. <laughs> they, <laughs> but they have, they have a good support system. They have, a, you know, us, family, friends, um, they know, you know, all the advocacy and stuff that I do now. And they're, it's sort of just our new normal. They're, they're not, they don't, I don't, as far as I know, they don't, um, worry, worry so much excessively that they know they're in a bad place. Well, that was going to be my, my next question is, you know, how are they, they dealing with it now? You know, you've been in remission for four years, but you know, there, there can be a fear, especially with, well, with anybody really, not just children, but to, to know that, you know, mom could get sick again. Um, and you know, it, it, I think it's a, a process in, in families to, um, as you said, you didn't hide anything, which I think is really good. So you're open about what was happening. And and I, I wonder if that also makes them trust the process more because they understand what's happened and, and they know that, you know, they're going to be in the loop of what's going on. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want them. Uh, another thing I didn't. I wanted to tell them that there is a possibility it could come back just because I didn't, if it does come back, I didn't want them to be like, but you told me you were cured. You know, you told me this. And so I've, I've always been open with them. And I, I think that's important because um, they're, they were at an age where they can understand and um, deal with it. There was a, a, there was a one day when my son came home from school and they had learned about cancer in health class and that, that it's serious and that you could die from it. And I could tell he there was something wrong when he came home from school, and he and he started to cry, and he said, "You know, they told they told us you could die die from this." And I said, "Well, you can, but you can die from a lot a lot of things." And right now, I'm doing well, and I just listed all the positive things in my favor, and that I was being treated by the top people, and uh, I was going to do everything I could, and that seemed to uh, calm him down. Yeah, well, you know, it's and I think it's important to have that um, openness with everybody around you. You can get more support, but also just the the understanding um, of where everything's at, especially for children. It's confusing anyway. Um, you know, life isn't the same. Um, but I, I like what what you've done now. Of um, post traumatic growth is a really good good term for it. Um, but you know, it seems like you're you've embraced things um, quite well and and um, I, I think that's an important lesson for anybody who's gone through a chronic illness or still is that you know this is what life is it can be hard it is hard and um, we have to make the best of of what we have yes yes and you're not alone too there are a lot of people going through this and um, that's another thing I, I why I'm so sort of open about it because it's important to know you're not alone 
and to reach out and help other people who are going through it as well. Mm-hmm. Now, if if we were to look into the future um, for ovarian cancer, what changes can we see that might be happening or coming? In? Uh, well, hopefully we'll have an early screening test. That would be <laughs> a huge, a huge discovery. Um, yeah. Better treatments, maybe treatments that can, it's becoming more of a chronic disease, um, which is good because it used to sort of you know, as the silent killer sort of death sentence. Now it's not, we're moving away from that. We're moving it into this can be managed. You know, you might have to go back on chemo every few years, but we can, we can make this work. So that's the direction we're going in. And hopefully any, any way, any new drugs that are developed, which um, we need funding for because it's considered a rare disease. So unfortunately we don't get a lot of money. Um, that's why there's a lot of, um, and it's important to have grassroots efforts to raise money for clinical trials and uh, so we can have more discoveries and, and saving women's lives and prolonging women's lives. Mm-hmm. So if it's considered a rare disease, how many women are diagnosed every year? Uh, it's about 21,000 women are diagnosed and okay. 14,000 deaths every year. Oh, well, you know, it might be rare, but that's still a lot. I think 14,000 deaths, 14,000 women, um, you know, who are, uh, there definitely needs to be a change. You know, as you said, early screening so that, um, you know, there might be 21,000 diagnoses, but less deaths would be nice. Yeah, it's actually, I'm sorry, 22,530 are the amount of women. So, yeah, that's one, a little bit more. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but less deaths would be definitely uh, where we where we would want to be. Yeah, definitely agree. Um, so, if um, anybody needs more information or they need the support, how can they get a hold of the program? So, um, just by the the number eight four four ask share, you can call that number, or you can go online to sharecancersupport.org. And you can find everything on our website. Okay, perfect. Um, now, do you have any last advice for anybody who is newly diagnosed or whose partner or family member is? Um, it's have keep hope alive. Um, this isn't, you can do it. Uh, what else? Uh, September is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Where it's Our color is teal. Uh, get involved also with patients, other survivors and former patients, reach out, uh, get, don't be afraid to talk to people. Um, it, it really helps to talk to someone who's been through it. Mm-hmm, for sure. Well, Michelle, um, thank you so much for joining me today and, and all the work that you do to bring awareness and help women um, with this disease. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. And I want to thank everybody for um, listening. If you want more information about my story and what I went through back to health, um, you can see that on my website at dr-risk.com. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you have any questions, you can send them to anantacalgary at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. 
Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.